Welcome to this week's sermon audio from Covenant Presbyterian Church of Fort Smith. Covenant is a church devoted to theological depth, intimate relationships, joyous worship, relentless evangelism, and sacrificial service. Coming up, a sermon from our series, Romans, the Gospel for Sinners. Here now is our pastor, Dr. John Clayton. looking at Romans chapter 14 verses 13 through 23 hear now the reading of God's holy word therefore let us not pass judgment on one another any longer but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself But it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God, and approved by men. So then, let us pursue what makes for peace, and for mutual upbuilding. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat, or drink wine, or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats. Because the eating is not from faith, for whatever does not proceed from faith, is sin. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's go to him in prayer. Our gracious God in heaven, we confess that you are the source of all light, and that by your word you give light to our souls. And so we ask this morning that you would pour out upon us the spirit of wisdom and understanding that being taught by you in Holy Scripture, our hearts our minds may be open to know the things that pertain to life and holiness. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. I'm sure you recall the Old Testament story. The Lord sent Samuel to the house of Jesse to anoint one of his sons as the next king of Israel. But Samuel was cautioned by the Lord with these words. Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, for the Lord looks on the heart. Of Jesse's sons, they all passed before Samuel. All of them, you recall, except for one, David, the shepherd. And so David was summonsed from the pasture, and when he arrived... Samuel knew he was the one. For the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, 
for this is he. The Lord had chosen a king for Israel, who was then anointed and confirmed. And scripture says that in that moment, the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And it was truly an extraordinary day in the house of Jesse. And then, and then, nothing. Nothing else was said or done. No coronation, no celebration, only the presence of the Lord patiently leading David toward his destiny. Depending on how you calculate it, it would be at least 15 long years before David was coronated king. 15 years in which he would experience the high of highs and and the low of lows living as the someday king. Can you imagine the frustration and despair? I mean, you talk about living with patience, with anticipation, 15 long years. Why would God choose David and then anoint him as king and then let so much time pass? The years roll on. Even the one key witness, think about this, how discouraging this would be. Even the one key witness who knew it all, who God had spoken to directly, Samuel, dies well before David would become king. Did David's hope flounder with Samuel's funeral? I wonder. So what do you suppose it was like for David to live as the already anointed, yet not yet coronated king? Well, in a sense, you know. If you are in Christ, think about this. If you are in Christ, you have been chosen by God. You have been given faith. You have been justified as righteous. You have been filled with the Spirit of God. In Christ, you are, in fact, a child of God. You are, in fact, a citizen already. Philippians chapter 3, you are already a citizen of heaven. You are an heir of the kingdom of God. In fact, you are a fellow heir with Christ of the kingdom. You are already royalty. But we have not yet donned our regal robes of glory. Like David, in a sense, you and I are living the already, but not yet. When the Apostle Paul typically talks about the kingdom of God in his different letters, typically he refers to it in a future tense. Typically, Involving Christ's return. And yet, in this chapter of Romans, he refers to it in a present tense. Look at verse 17 with me. The kingdom of God is. Present tense. 
He first tells us what it is not. What's it not? A matter of eating and drinking. And he then tells us what it is. Righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. As eating and drinking are temporal matters, and as righteousness, peace, and joy are eternal matters, he is teaching us how the not yet is lived in the already. Think about this. And you know this to be true. The Roman church, like the modern church, was just full of critics. (laughs) Some critics abstained from certain foods, and others, well, others indulged. But here's what Paul tells us. Both thought the other was wrong. Some Christians kept holy days and festivals, and others did not. They treated every day the same. Both thought the other was wrong. The weak and strong, as Paul refers to them in this passage and before, both felt incensed to judge one another. We might say in modern terminology, they felt like they had the right to judge their brother or sister. And Paul confronts this, saying to both of them, Forget about deciding what's right for each other and consider the welfare of one another. Forget about deciding what's right for each other and consider what is the welfare of one another. And to make his point, Paul engages imagery. He uses two examples here. A stumbling block, that is a spiritual tripping hazard, and a hindrance, the Greek word there literally translated means a trap. A spiritual tripping hazard and a trap, we might say. And both metaphors here, as Paul uses them, they tell us the same thing. The same liability. And I might add that this liability is not an innocent one. Trying to play your brother's conscience or your sister's conscience can cause him to stumble. Can cause her to fall. Rather than enlightened, he may become ensnared. Rather than liberated, she may become enslaved. The remedy for the potential casualty is humility. Instead of being motivated by selfish ambition, instead of being motivated by vanity, Paul said to the Philippians, each of you should, in humility, be moved to treat one another as more important than you. Hmm. Now, as we think about this, I can imagine that someone might argue that this is tantamount to letting our brother or sister continue in ignorance. Someone might say, yeah, but, 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 but they, they're, they're trapped. They've not been freed by the gospel and I'm watching in them and it just really bothers me. I mean, doesn't Paul freely say, I know and I am persuaded in the Lord that in the Lord Jesus that nothing is in unclean in itself. Shouldn't we be concerned when a brother is shackled to the limitations rather than liberated by the gospel of Christ? 
But such an argument misses what we might call here the kingdom perspective. As Paul explains, For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. Paul's point, food is going to pass away. Drink is going to pass away. But love never ends. Such love considers others through the lens of God's love. We think about a verse that I would imagine all of us have memorized. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. Now think about it. Would you destroy the one for whom Christ died? For the sake of something as trivial as food? No. You would look at them as God does. And in doing so, you would trust their care to His care. In saying this, I'm reminded of David's tumultuous relationship with King Saul. Over and over, Saul, who was full of selfish ambition, full of vanity, concerned himself with only himself. And even seeking to destroy the future king. And if you think about it, how could David have responded? Think about how I would want to respond. To someone who is obsessed with wanting to kill me. And yet, over and over, what do we see in David's example? David did not respond or react with self-interest. But God gave David the grace. In fact, here's what David said. You could paraphrase this because it shows up a number of different times. In which David said... The Lord forbid that I should put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. What does that teach us? What we see in that example, and as Paul is driving home in our passage today, is that David considered God's purpose in Saul to be greater than his own temporal circumstance. Let me say that again. David considered God's purpose in Saul to be greater than David's own difficult circumstance. As children of the kingdom, may God give us the grace to say the same. When David was anointed king, the scripture says, as I read before, the spirit of the Lord rushed upon him from that day forward. Now think about that. From that day forward, he was guaranteed the kingdom. And from that day forward, he was empowered to reign. Even though it would be years before he would reign, in that moment, he was empowered to do what God had called him and anointed him to do. And in fact, it served as a form of guarantee of his kingdom to come. Now, theologically, we can't draw an identical example from David, but still similarly, the same could be said of you and me. Think about this. We have been given the Holy Spirit as the guarantee of our 
royal inheritance. And it is through Him that we live as heirs of the kingdom. And this is evidenced in our life by what Scripture calls fruit. That is, godly character that the Holy Spirit produces through us. Paul singles out three, doesn't he? Of course, he could have included more, but here he singles out three. What are the three? Look at the text. Chapter, verse 17, righteousness and peace and joy of the Holy Spirit. By faith, we are justified as righteous. A right standing before God, and that right standing is forever. And through the Holy Spirit, we are enabled and we are empowered to live righteously. By faith, we are at peace with God. We have been saved from His wrath. And we have been called His children. And through the Holy Spirit, we are enabled to live out this peace in our lives, notably with others. And all of this we rejoice, don't we? We rejoice in the grace of God in our salvation. An inexplicable joy that is given to us by the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. In this sense, as well as all the other fruits of the Spirit, through our, though our inheritance awaits us, we enjoy, think about this, though our inheritance awaits us, we enjoy the blessings of the kingdom today through the Holy Spirit. Yet how often do we disconnect the Spirit's work in our lives from the kingdom of God. Oh, the kingdom of God. That's that out there. That's what's coming, we might say. We may lament a lack of heavenly mindedness, but do we ignore heaven's practical presence in our relations with one another? Paul teaches that the kingdom life means considering others and for their sake pursuing what he says here as what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. What makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Now what Paul describes here, and in, in the Greek it is a sentence, what Paul describes here is akin to the Hebrew word shalom. Shalom means completeness, soundness, welfare, peace. It can also mean victory. But I like the way that one pastor defines shalom. Shalom means wholeness. The dynamic, vibrating health of God's people that pulses with divinely directed purpose, and surges with life-transforming love. It sounds like the kingdom of God to me, doesn't it? Sounds like living for peace and for mutual upbuilding in the church. And when we seek shalom, we are not simply quieting controversy. We're not simply settling for solitude in the church. We are seeking the best for one another. Think about that. Shalom in the church 
includes seeking the best for one another. We are living in such a way that doesn't ignore differences. You know, we would enjoy fellowship if everybody would just agree with my political position. No, we wouldn't. (laughs) That's a farce. No, that's not the way it works. Actually, we enjoy fellowship through the Holy Spirit in our differences. Hmm. We are living in such a way through the Holy Spirit that not only removes stumbling blocks, but also scans for minefields. Thinking of one another, one another's best interest, one another's frailty, and our frailty too. What is my brother and sister susceptible to? And how may I come alongside and help them? We are living in such a way that never tears down. But as Paul taught the Corinthians, we build up. And he told the Corinthians, here are the areas that I want you to build one another up. Ready for the list? 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 26. Build one another up in all things. That's the list. Got it? (laughs) This, of course, is far easier to stand up here and preach than to do, than to live. And I know that. In reality, pursuing peace with our brother and sister can sometimes be remarkably difficult. That's the understatement of the year. When righteousness and peace and joy of the Holy Spirit is overshadowed by the fruits of the flesh, well, pursuing shalom just gets put on the shelf. (laughs) When, like David, I, I think about the example... And many of you will remember this. I think about his encounter with Nabal. Which he had the unfortunate name of being, his Hebrew name meaning the fool. But nevertheless, his encounter with Nabal, you may recall. and, And Nabal showed great ingratitude to David and David's men. And David, who we saw respond with such graciousness, such generosity to King Saul, do you remember how David responded to Nabal, the fool, to his ingratitude? He said, boys, strap on your swords. That is not good news for Nabal. Especially considering the fierceness of the soldier that David was. Strap on your sword. Let's pursue retaliation. You remember what happened? You do. Along comes Abigail. Thank God. Right? But in that moment, think about this. And I'm going to read to you what Abigail said to David, which is incredibly moving. But in that moment, I think also what God shows us is we need one another. We need one another. Because there are times when I'm The fool. There are times when you're the fool. And we need our brothers and sisters in the church to come alongside. And we need Abigail. Here's what she said to David. I might add, after she fell at his feet. And at his feet, somehow she reasoned 
incredibly intellectually, I might add, reasoned with his mind, and then she pleaded, please forgive the trespass of your servant, meaning the fool. Please forgive the trespass of your servant. And then she goes on to say, when the Lord has done to you, according to all the good that He has spoken concerning you, and has appointed you leader over Israel, you shall have no cause or grief or pangs of conscience for having shed blood without cause, or for you working salvation for yourself. <laughs> oh, thank God for Abigail. Well, that's, that's what David said. In fact, David saw that Abigail had confronted him. She had assessed the situation she had reminded David, fascinatingly enough, she knows what his future is. Isn't that interesting? She reminds him of what is to come. She tells him, you will one day be king. And then she pleads, oh please forgive. Oh please pursue peace. And David responded with these beautiful words. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel who sent you this day to meet me. Blessed be your discretion, and blessed be you who have kept me this day from blood guilt and from working salvation with my own hand. May God fill this church, and may God grant each of us an Abigail, and may God grant us the grace to listen to her. As we each are acceptable to God, in Christ, we serve His interest in the church as a whole. Difficulty in our relations with one another should lead us. Difficulty in our relationships with one another should lead us to an ever-increasing comprehension and an understanding of God's place in our lives. It should encourage us and our faith all the more and it should lead us to pray. Oh, let us be a praying church that prays for one another. Rather than strapping on our swords, let's fall to our knees. As we do this, as we do this, as we pray for one another, seeking the best for each other, the Lord will begin to show us the connection between God's will and our brother and sister. Teaching us forgiveness. Teaching us empathy. Teaching us service. And when we discover God's will, and love at the center of every encounter. It is then that we begin to see the light of the kingdom of God. In and through sinners like you and me. And so brothers and sisters in Christ. God is at work in his church. And we must not do anything to impede his progress in our sanctification. Even something as trivial as disagreement over food. And I might add, please insert something equally trivial that you may follow this example as food. Paul states it starkly. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. 
I find that statement fascinating. And here's why. Destroy the work of God? <laughs> like, is that even possible? To destroy the work of God? I would think if you asked me, John, can you do anything that could destroy the work of God? I'd say, nope, can't do it. I'm a Presbyterian. But Paul is surely using hyperbole here. He's not challenging the sovereign will of God. What he means is what? What does Paul mean here? Well, he means something very practical. Just as the Spirit of the Lord can use you and can use me to Build one another up, which is a beautiful picture. So also, your flesh can lead you, and my flesh can lead me, to tear one another down. The implication is, is that the Lord is working in you and in me, often through you and through me, and we must take care in what we do. If you are in constant conflict with others in the church, this is a newsflash, I know, but if you are in constant conflict with others in the church, the problem is most certainly you. Regardless of your age, regardless of your experience, regardless of your knowledge. Neither you nor I ever reach a point in life when we are licensed to criticize or cleared to cause conflict. May God may very well, in keeping with Paul, what Paul says here, God may very well have given you the faith that frees you from the constraints of others. Well, congratulations. That is a beautiful thing, and I'm not being facetious. That is wonderful that you have been liberated from the constraints that may affect others. Now, here's what Paul says to do with it. Keep it to yourself and God. It's a private matter between you and God. Your brother and sister, they may not be there yet in their maturity. And your mouth will not make it any better. <laughs> we need to learn the blessed art of what I call spiritual quietude. Learn most of the time to say nothing except that which builds up. In fact, in all things. In love, we learn to respect the convictions of one another. And some are ready to enjoy all the liberty that the gospel gives. And I like, I like Paul, pray that you will one day be there. Some are not. And whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. And so this calls for sanctified patience with one another. As one commentator puts it, quote, For a Christian, not a single decision and action can be good, which he does not think he can justify on the ground of his Christian conviction and his liberty before God and Christ. Or if I could put it a little more simply, if the way you live isn't consistent with what you believe, then it's wrong. And so we live rightly with one another. And in living rightly with one another, we respect 
one another's conscience. Lest we cause one another to sin against conviction. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, you build your church. We don't. And you, by your sovereign purpose and providence, have brought every member of this church here, even today. Our being here is according to your sovereign providence. And as you have assembled us, so also you have called us to live together and to love one another. And so we pray for the grace to do that very thing. And as you give us the grace, let us see that it is the truth of living the kingdom of God. For you indeed have blessed us with a great inheritance. You have blessed us indeed as heirs with Christ. And so let us live today as kingdom children for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's sermon. We hope you have grown in your knowledge of and love for God. Covenant Presbyterian is a PCA church that meets for worship on Sunday mornings at 10.30 a.m. Our address is 120 North 9th Street in historic downtown Fort Smith, Arkansas. For more information about Covenant, visit our website at www.cpcfs.org.